We're so thankful you've chosen to tune in on whatever platform you're using, whether Podbean or through Facebook or iTunes. Whatever way you're listening, I just want to say thank you for joining in. We'd love to hear from you, so drop a comment to us or email us at thegrove267 at gmail.com. If you want to know more about us as a ministry, go to hisgrove.com, or you can also check us out on Facebook at Deeply Rooted Ministries in Canton, Texas. We believe God wants to use these messages to spread His truth to a needy world, but primarily a needy church, which needs the truth of the Word to resurrect among us so that Heaven's army will be equipped to win souls and train them up in the Lord. Jesus said if we know the truth, it will set us free. So help us to bring freedom to people's lives by sharing these messages in any way you can. Now to our podcast. Well, hello listeners. <clears throat> whether you're a first time <clears throat> excuse me. Whether you are a first time listener or you have been joining us through this series. Uh, going all the way through Hebrews, we are going to be in chapter 7 today. And as I brought up in um, chapter 5 in regards to Melchizedek, uh, I, I don't know who this guy was. What we do know from the text is that he was the high priest of God, uh, that he serves in the priesthood of him forever. And as we're going to learn today, as we go through chapter 7, that he had no genealogy, he had no beginning of days, he had no end of days, um, no father, no mother, that he was a man. Uh, we don't know a whole lot about him, just that he resembles the Son of God um, and who he is now, who Christ has become, as it says that he is being made perfect or that he was made perfect um, and continues forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's all that we really know about him. And so I'm not going to pretend that I've got that mystery figured out as we're going to go through chapter 7, which is the kind of the epitome of Melchizedek and, and the, the, um, the main chapter that talks about him and his, you know, his purpose and his role and how he resembles Christ. Um, I'm not going to pretend like I know the mystery of it. So what we're going to do is we're going to focus on the things that we do know from this text, the things that we do glean from what the author of Hebrews is trying to tell us through chapter 7 and we're going to go you know you can go study it out Genesis 14 is where Melchizedek makes his his debut in scripture Um, you can go look at that and study it out and maybe God will reveal that to you and maybe there'll be something from this that'll kind of springboard a desire to to seek after that knowledge and maybe God will bestow that to you uh, in a way that he hasn't to me and that's totally fine if you do draw me a comment I would love to hear what God has shown you on this um But uh, aside from that, we're going to find out what God has for us um, in the text that's relevant for us today for how we live our lives, what what we live under, and how we're supposed to function as the royal priesthood. Because 1 Peter chapter 2 makes it very clear that we as the church are the, the royal priesthood. That we offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable through Jesus Christ. And it's very important for us to understand that. Okay, This whole chapter, and I'm, I'm going to kind of uh, summarize almost a little bit before I even get into it. So this would be like in an essay. This is my opening paragraph um, to kind of summarize what I'm going to be talking about. Essentially, God has bypassed the physical in order to establish the spiritual. All right. So in First Peter chapter two, when he's talking about this, he says, "Look, we offer spiritual sacrifices, okay, that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ." That's verse five. Even going into verse two, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual 
milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices. The, the premise is, is that we as the church are now the temple of God. That we are a spiritual temple who are fed with spiritual milk or spiritual manna. Who are living stones or a, a spiritual stone who offer spiritual sacrifices. Do you, do you catch kind of what the word is teaching? Even in Hebrews 12 it says that God's domain, that the church is where the, the, the glory of God rests. It says that we are in a heavenly Jerusalem. We are a spiritual Jerusalem. God's bypassing that which was physical to establish the spiritual. Okay, this has so many. Um, you know, tunnels and things that we could go down, but it all leads to the same place, okay? God, through Christ, in this new covenant that he's established, is bypassing the physical in order to establish the spiritual. That could be that he is bypassing the physical nation of Israel to establish his heavenly one in the church. That means that he's bypassing the physical law, physical sacrifices, physical institution of feasts, physical food rituals, um, physical cleansings, all those things he has now bypassed in order to establish this spiritual Okay? This is a concept that you must understand. This is why John 3 talks about it where he says that you, that which is flesh is flesh. That which is physical is physical. 1 Corinthians 2 says the natural person cannot accept the things of God because they are spiritually discerned. You have to have the mind of the Spirit. And as John 3 says, you must be born of the Spirit. You have to be if you want to understand the things of God, of who we are to be in Christ. So with that introduction, if you will, we're going to get into chapter 7. Remember, I, I'm not going to talk a lot about Melchizedek and the mystery that's kind of um, enveloped around him. I'm going to talk more about what is established through Christ for us. So with that said, we're going to get into this. He says four, so again he's linking it as the author does in almost every chapter, if not every chapter. The first word is linking it to the previous chapter. Remember, he didn't write it in chapters, this was a letter. We broke it up into chapters for ease of teaching and reading. He says, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, which basically his name means king of righteousness, and king of Salem means king of peace. It sound familiar? Jesus, the king of kings, lord of lords, the prince of peace. You know, we, we know that this is a, a illustration of Christ. That much is clear. He says, priest of the most high God, he met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Again, this is in Genesis chapter 14. You should go read this. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, the king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, which even Christ had the genealogy. We can go look at that in uh, Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 4. You're going to find the genealogy of Christ that's descended even back unto Adam, whether through Mary or whether through Joseph. It says, that is the king of peace, he is without father, mother, or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So what he's establishing here is that Melchizedek was the high priest of the spiritual order of God in heaven. 
I mean, he's the priest of the Most High God, and there was nothing that was necessarily physical about him other than he took on a physical form, as it says um, in verse 4. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils? This, this was a man who took on physical form, but was a spiritual priest serving at the altar of heaven. Okay, That's what we know about this guy. He had no beginning of days. He had no end of days. He had no father, no mother. There was nothing physical necessarily about him other than he took on physical form and appeared to Abraham. Now what's interesting is that you see that exact same thing with Jesus who took on physical form. But there's a distinction between Christ and Melchizedek. And one is is that Christ had a genealogy on earth. As we just talked about in, in Matthew chapter 1 and Luke 4. And so there's almost this sense of Jesus wasn't just uh, because of lineage and descendantry, he wasn't appointed a priest. It's almost as if, and, and I want to guard my words on this carefully, but I hope you understand what I mean. It's almost as if Jesus had to earn the priesthood. And we're going to get into that in just a second. Melchizedek was appointed a priest without merit. It's as if Jesus had to earn that priesthood. To be appointed into that position. And so stay with me. If you read the rest of Hebrews. You're going to kind of grasp what I'm stating on this. Uh, really if you read the rest of the New Testament. You're going to grasp what I stated on this. And even in Hebrews chapter 5. And it says. And being made perfect. He became the source of eternal salvation. He wasn't always the source of it from the beginning. It says he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And he was being made perfect. Which is a present tense um, passage in that. In which it's stating that. For, I, I don't know how it all plays out. I'm just telling you what the text says. That Jesus was being made perfect. So it's almost as if he had to earn this priesthood and this appointed um, aspect unto office. I, I don't know how this works, but that seems to be what it's stating, especially if we keep reading. So going on, um, kind of leaving Melchizedek aside, we're going to keep going forward. He says, see how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people... That is, from their brothers. Though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, whom does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In one case, tithes are received by mortal men. But in the other case, in the case of Melchizedek, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. This can be a very confusing thing, okay? And, and to a degree, it's confusing for me. What I, what I get from this, okay? And again, I'd love to hear your comments on this if you've got things figured out on this or, or even just aspects of it that I don't. Um, I'd love to hear from you on this. Uh, what I get from this is that he's stating, look, Abraham, as great as what Abraham was, and people look at him as the beginning of the Jewish race, which he is, the Israels, or the, the Israels, the Israelites. Um, he was the beginning of it, as God told him, I'm going to make your um, descendants as great as the sand of the seashore, and those who bless you, bless them, um, I'll bless, and those who curse them, I'll curse. We know the promise that's given to him, which has now been um, inferred to the church, and transferred to the church, I should say. Um, and yet... Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek. 
You see, from the loins of Abraham, Levi, as it's talking about, you could even say Levi was in the loins of, of his ancestors, which I love that because God sees in generations. He doesn't see, you know, just from generation to generation. He sees in generations. Levi was appointed by, <clears throat> by God as a priest. He was going to be the beginning of the Levites. And their portion was to get tithes from the people. The people were supposed to give them tithes. And yet, he says, Abraham, who is the patriarch of all of that, he gave tithes to Melchizedek. Essentially, I think this is what he's establishing. That God and the spiritual order of heaven is greater than any man. Or any physical order of man. And it's our obligation, not for God to bless us, but for us to bless God. And I think we oftentimes have it backwards. It's almost as if we take the promises that God has given. He says, hey, I will bless you if, you know. And we take that as our entitlement for God to bless us. And yet here it seems, though, that he's establishing that you have to remember where the order and where the authority lies. It is not in one of those things where the inferior um, deserves the blessing from the superior. It's that you get to have the blessing from the superior. And so this, this concept I think that he's establishing here is that we oftentimes think that we as men in our physical order and, and specifically of the law here, the law of Moses and what was brought down that the Levites were this great people and the Pharisees were these great people. The Sanhedrin was these great people. Abraham was this great person and we forget our place. The concept I believe that he's stating here is don't forget your place. You are not greater than God. You are not greater than Christ. You are not greater than the spiritual order that God has authority over. It's your job to bless Him. And I think we forget that in the church today sometimes. We think it's all about Him blessing us. As if He's some genie in a bottle that we kind of rub that lamp in the right way and then He has, we are entitled for Him to have to bless us. That's not the gospel. That's not Christianity. If anyone had that right, it would have been Christ. And Christ tried to rub that lamp in the Garden of Gethsemane and he got told no. We can't forget our place. And so it goes on. He says, now if perfection, uh, which is the Greek word teleosis, it's the, the act of or the process of being perfected, different from teleu or tele, um, teleo. Um, teleosis is the, the act of being perfected. He says, now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood. He says, if, if the Levitical priesthood could have brought about perfection unto the people, then what further need would there have been to look for another priesthood? Why would God be looking for another one? If everything was, was accomplished through the law of Moses, if everything that, that God set forth through the law of Moses to be delivered to the people and orchestrated and set up, if that could actually achieve what God wanted in His people... Why would there have ever been a need to look for another one? Now this is really important because you need to stay with me on this because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of dismantle the concept of the Hebrew roots movement that's happening in the church in which people are trying to go back to the law. I've even heard people as far as saying that if we had a temple, a physical temple in Jerusalem, that we as Christians should have to go back to that temple and offer sacrifices because it was implemented in the law of Moses. That we should offer sacrifices unto God through a physical ordered priesthood. 
in order to be right before God. I've heard that exact statement. And I'm going to tell you it's heresy at its core. And so I'm going to talk about some things. I'm going to dismantle this concept of the Hebrew roots. Okay? He says if perfection or what God wanted to establish in his people had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood for under it the people received the law. Remember Aaron was the very first priest descended from the, the descendants of Levi. All right, this is You had to be a Levite to serve as a priest because that was your portion. He says what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? Rather than one named after the order of Aaron. He said, well, God would have just continued on the process through Aaron for all time. That, if that's what he was looking for and that what could establish perfection in his people, then he said, then God never would have looked for another priest. Christ never would have been sent to serve in the order after Melchizedek. He would have kept things going through the order of Levi. But that wasn't what God was looking for. Levi was a band-aid. And that makes more sense when you understand chapter 10. Levi, or the Levites, or their purpose, was a band-aid to serve physically until the spiritual came. Now that goes into Galatians, in which you want to look at Galatians chapter 3. He says it like this. Now before faith came, you could say even before the spiritual came or before Christ came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Notice there's an expiration date of it. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. The concept is is that the law, the the physical priesthood, the Levites was a band-aid. It was a temporary thing that God established because he always always was meaning to send Christ. But it was a temporary band-aid to serve um, as the priesthood on earth until Christ came. Until the spiritual access to be born of the Spirit had been brought. And this is what he stated in the Hebrew 7. If perfection or that which God wanted out of his people could have been attainable through the law, then God never would have sent Christ. If the physical priesthood of the Levites would have been sufficient for what God wanted ultimately to establish in his people, then he never would have been looking for another priest to serve at the altar after the order of Melchizedek. But check out what he says. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. Now, what's interesting is that God was very emphatic in Deuteronomy that you are to not add or take away from the law, you are to not deviate from it in any shape or shadow. In no way could you change the law of what God established. So here's here's what God did. God's not one who's going to say it's just like in marriage. God's it's a death do you part. There had to be something that took place in which God fulfilled that law in order to establish another. In the same way that the only way that a marriage covenant is fulfilled is through death. That's the only possible way. And only then, when death has occurred under this new covenant, this is why it's so important to understand that we uphold the covenant of marriage in light of the the covenant we have with Christ. Only when the death occurs can you then go into another covenant. This concept of remarriage 
is not biblical. You cannot remarry outside of being a widow. 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 11 makes that clear. And 1 Corinthians 7, 39 makes that clear. Romans 7, 1 through 3 makes that very clear. The concept of all of this is that the law has changed because there's been a change in the priesthood. Please stay with me on this. If you're confused on this, I don't know how else to explain this in, in simpler terms. The Levitical priesthood has been done away with because now the spiritual priesthood of Christ as our high priest after the order of Melchizedek who continues forever has now been established. There's no longer a need for Levitical priesthood. There's been a change. And the way that that change was able to be brought about in a biblical pattern of God still staying true to his word is the death of Christ. On that cross, that's what Hebrews 9 talks about. It says the will or the contract or the covenant could not be established until the death of the one who instituted it happened. Jesus had to die in order for a new covenant to be established. In the same way it is in marriage. A death must occur before a new covenant can be established. So God holding true to his word... He fulfilled everything that needed to be done in that old covenant in the person of Jesus Christ. And then the death occurred so that the old was completely fulfilled on our behalf. So that we could come and belong to another. Under new covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ. This is paramount to understand. Because if you don't understand this, this basic foundational principle then your doctrine will be off. He goes on and he says, For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Isn't that interesting that Judah was the lineage of the kings? Not of the priests. And Jesus had no Levitical lineage. Now here's what's interesting. How could then Jesus serve as a priest on earth as it talked about that he was? Well, here's how. In order, I think it's in Numbers chapter 8. I'm sorry, not Numbers. um, Leviticus chapter 8, I believe. Um, In order for a, a person to serve... To be able to put on the holy attire and to serve as a priest, they had to be washed by another priest, another Levite. Okay, And and there had to be a washing that took place um, in order for them to first put on the holy garments and to serve as a priest. So when you look at baptism, of what Jesus went through, and he says this is to fulfill all righteousness, that's why John the Baptist was in the lineage of the Levites. Zechariah, his dad, served as a Levite, as a priest. John the Baptist was a Levite. And so the reason John the Baptist had to baptize Jesus was because a Levite had to wash him in order for him to put on the holy garments and serve as a priest. Now here's, this is almost kind of like how the cross changed everything. It it, it shifted everything from a physical balance to a spiritual balance. So did the baptism. Because the holy attire that was being referenced was not some physical garment for Jesus to put on. 
that gave him authority and power over the people, that they would see that garment to be like, okay, that's a Levite who's serving as a priest. I need to respect that man. No, 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 no. The holy attire that he had to put on was the Holy Spirit. That was the garment that he essentially had to have in order to serve as a priest of God. So that's why after Jesus was dunked in the water, it says that the Spirit descended upon him like a dove. He was now able, because he had been washed by a Levite to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law, he could then put on the holy attire of the Holy Spirit and serve as a spiritual priest on behalf of the people. But it wasn't all fully accomplished yet. And this is what I mean by he had to earn that priesthood. Because it wasn't through a lineage or descent. So it goes on. This becomes even more evident. I really hope you guys are tracking with me. Because this, this is foundational. There's a lot of milk here. But there is a ton of meat. But this must be established as a truth. A foundational truth in your life. Otherwise you will miss so much of who we are in Christ. And what we have been given in him. It says, this becomes even more evident, if, as if that wasn't more ev- evident enough, when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement, speaking about Jesus, concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside... Now, I want you to pay very close attention because of what we know he's talking about, a former commandment. He's referencing it back to the Levitical law that was referenced, what was that, back in 11. And he's about to even bring it again. He says, for on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside. That's a Greek word, athetesis. It means abolition or abolished. It means dismantled or canceled. Did you catch what I said? When you take that in a connection with Deuteronomy, it says you do not get to abolish or cancel anything of the law. Right? And yet we just said it was written right here. On one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weaknesses and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Notice, you don't draw near to God through the law. That has actually been set aside and abolished. And I know some of you who might be leaning towards or even engulfed in this Hebrew roots type thing, you are immediately screaming, Matthew 5! Matthew 5! Let me just clarify something with you real quick, okay? For one, I'm going to go back into Ephesians 2 and tell you what's written. If I'm going to believe that the New Testament is Spirit-inspired and it has now come after Christ, then I got to believe what it says is true. And here's what he says in Ephesians chapter 2, in verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, notice the position, in Christ, now that faith has come, now that Christ has come, now that the spiritual has fully been um, brought into this earth for us to live in. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. After the order of Melchizedek, king of peace, who has made us both one, Jew and Gentile, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. It doesn't get much more clear. It says, when Christ came and died on that cross and fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law of Moses, he put an end to that covenant of death. 
by his death in order to establish a new one. And you might be looking at Matthew 5 and say, but he says he did not come to abolish the law. You're right, that wasn't his purpose. He came to fulfill it. And by his fulfillment, abolished it for those who come into Christ. That law, the law of Moses, is still in full effect today. If you are outside of Christ, it will judge you. It will deem you as being unfit and unworthy for the kingdom of heaven. Because there is only one access point to heaven. And his name is Jesus Christ. So Jesus didn't come to abolish the law for all mankind. And that's why Matthew 5 is so important to understand in his fullness. That's why he sums it all up. He says, therefore, you must be perfect even as your heavenly father is perfect. And his whole premise of what he stated on the mount, the sermon on the mount, is this. If you want to try to get into heaven outside of Jesus Christ, then you must be perfect. But here's the thing we just learned. Perfection wasn't attainable through the law. So you're at a conundrum. You can't be perfect through the law of Moses. Therefore, you can't get into heaven. Essentially, Jesus is declaring... I'm the Messiah, I'm the Christ, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. You don't come to the Father but through me. I'm the door, I'm the shepherd of the sheep. If you don't want to come in through me and you want to try to find another avenue, you want to try to find another way in, maybe the law of Moses, he says, then you're going to be up a creek without a paddle because you cannot get in aside from me. So Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. For all of mankind. He came to fulfill it. So that those who come into Christ. Would find it abolished. No longer our governing authority. No longer what we live by. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. To all who believe. Romans 10.3 This is what is being stated. Through chapter 7 in Hebrews as well. It's just upholding what the apostles. Have been teaching in the new covenant theology. In a proper understanding in relation to Matthew chapter 5. Which is the one that throws everybody for a loop. They think, no, 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 it's still there. We have to live under it. No, there is way too much evidence in scripture. That says that we are not under the law any longer. We don't live according to the ordinances to find our way to God. It's not about a righteous requirement of a law. Because Christ is the end of that for us. Now, there's so many things that we could go through in the tunnels to get to the the cavern of truth and all of this stuff. But I'm going to try to stay on context here so we get through chapter 7 because otherwise I'm going to end up going in ways of probably talking in circles about all this stuff. What we do know, the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. It was not without an oath for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who has said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. He never said that about the the Levites. You could even go back and study this word forever, which can mean um, indefinite. It can mean without an end, but it it can also mean indefinite or until an appointed time. So when it says that you are to keep this forever... That, that word alam, with its root word olam, it means that it's concealed or the hidden time, that indefinite place is up to God, not us. That God at some time could put an expiration date on it. And what's interesting is that that concept of something being veiled and hidden, 
was the very thing that when Jesus died on that cross was ripped in two, giving us access now to the, to the Shekinah glory of God. But also, I believe, it put an expiration date on the things that were no longer to be established. Under Christ, he says, you're a priest forever. After the order of Melchizedek, which has no end of days. He never said that about the Levites. He says this, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. One that's not under the old covenant of the law of Moses, but one that is established under the high priest of Jesus Christ that was even given through his own blood. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost, the fullest extent, perfectly, completely, those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. It says, everyone who draws near to God. I want you to notice the conditionality of this. It's not that he is able to save to the uttermost any who come to him. It's that he is able to save to the uttermost. So he can do his end. He can absolutely do his end. That's what 1 Thessalonians 5, 23-24 says. God is able to save perfectly and unto the completed state of it. Your body, soul, and spirit. May it be kept blameless Until the end of days. God is able. He will surely do it. He can uphold his end of it. The question isn't whether or not God can. It's whether or not you will. See a contract is written by two parties. And signed by both. God will uphold his end. You must uphold your end. That's what we talked about in chapter 6. The one that preceded this chapter. He is able to save to the uttermost. Those who draw near to God through him. Not those who drew near to him at one point. But those who draw near to God through Jesus Christ. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. Yeah, I I love the passage where Jesus is talking um, to Peter. and, and, And he says, I've prayed for you. And sometimes we forget that in the moments of our struggle that Jesus is serving as a high priest and he's actually making intercessions for us before the Father. Now I can't begin to tell you I know exactly what that looks like. But what I can tell you is that Jesus is praying for you. Like whatever you're going through right now, whatever you're struggling with, whatever you know, trials and life and temptations that you're struggling with, even maybe a vice that you have in your life, I want you to know Jesus, if you have draw near to God and you belong to Christ and you are still drawing near to God as as even it says um, in Jeremiah was it 23 where he says that if you seek me with all of your heart you will find me if you're giving your heart to the Lord and you're saying God I, I, I want out of this I don't know how to get out of this I don't know what when this season is going to end or when this trial is going to end when this temptation I can't promise you that it's going to end that the trial is going to end It might continue on and God might say, you need to let my grace be sufficient for you as he told Paul. You might have a trial that's coming in your life as a result of serving Jesus Christ. And he might say, no, my answer to you is no, son. You got to go to that cross. You got to go. I'm not going to say it's going to end. What I am saying is that he's praying for you. 
He's interceding for you to the Father. Not to make your life easier, but to make His life in you possible. Please understand what I mean by that because the cross was never designed to make our life easier. The thing we're supposed to bear daily, it just simply made the life of God in us possible. Something the law of Moses could never do. And it was never his intent. It could make nothing perfect, but yet through Christ I can do all things through him who strengthens me. He's praying for you. He says, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, just as we should be, right? 1 John 2, 6, anyone who says he abides in him ought to walk in the same manner which he did. This is how he walked. He was holy. He was separated from sinners. He was unstained by the world, which is what pure and undefiled religion is. We so often forget that. We think it's just humanitarianism. No. Pure and undefiled religion is this, that we take care of the widows and orphans in their affliction and keep ourselves unstained from the world. You see, this is who we're supposed to be. As Christ walked, so should we. He says, and exalted above the heavens, he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. It says he became the source of eternal salvation to all who would obey him. You want access to the Father for grace? Jesus is your way. He made one sacrifice for all time in order to provide us access unto the Father so that we don't have to come with the blood of bulls and goats. We don't have to come with those things any longer to be right before God. We don't offer those sacrifices because Hebrews 10 says that God prepared a body. A body that would then go on a cross so that we could draw near to God through him. Not through blood of bulls and goats. He says, for the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but a word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. He's the only way. Jesus is the only way. You will not come to the Father By keeping the ordinances of the law of Moses. You will not come to the Father through Levitical descendantry. You will not come to the Father by serving as a physical priest. You will not come to the Father by being a Jew. You will come to the Father through Jesus Christ and Him alone. God has bypassed through Christ the physical in order to establish the spiritual. That's the, the main theme of Hebrews chapter 7. There's some mysterious things in there. But that's the main thing that I want you to understand. That as you go through chapter 7. And really all of Hebrews. That's the main theme really of a lot of the New Testament books. Is that God has bypassed the physical in order to establish the spiritual. Jesus is the only way. If you're part of that Hebrew roots movement. That you find your your spirituality. Or you, you like to... to Um, go back to the law of Moses to give you some sense of like, oh yeah, I'm doing what God wants me to. I'm I'm going to tell you that you're not. If you want to observe a Sabbath, as we talked about in Hebrews chapter 4, and you want to do that according to the law of Moses, and you want to do it, you know, Friday night sundown to Saturday night sundown, and you want to wear your, your, you know, whatever garments that they told you to wear, fill in the blank. You want to not eat pork and not eat bacon. 
And you want to do those things and, and keep the feasts and all that and, and honor the Lord? Okay. Romans 14 says, go for it. But if you're doing it because you think that you need to, in order to uphold some righteous requirement of the law of Moses, then let me just tell you, as Romans 14 tells you, you're weak in faith. You don't understand what the cross is purchased for. You don't understand what Christ has actually purchased for you. And I'm not going to tell you to stop. Because I think that if you, if anything that doesn't proceed from faith is sin, if, if you don't have the faith to believe of what Christ has done for you, I'm not going to tell you to stop. But what I am going to tell you, keep searching, keep studying the word. Because Christ has purchased a lot more for you than what your faith has allowed you to this point. Study the word to show yourself approved. Not because you keep things within the law of Moses, but because you abide in Christ. Because that ultimately, that's your approval before God. Offering spiritual sacrifices through Christ that are pleasing to Him. That's the only way. And so, God bypassed the physical to establish the spiritual and praise God that when we come into Christ, we're no longer under the schoolmaster or the guardian of the law. We are now under the Christ and the Spirit. And we now belong to a spiritual priesthood, a spiritual temple, a spiritual kingdom that cannot be shaken. Go read the end of Hebrews chapter 12 as a precursor to what we're going to talk about in the next coming chapters. All right? Y'all be blessed.